Several weeks ago, seems like a light year away, um, before the Supreme Court ruling, we were actually looking at an annual health checkup for our congregation. Right? You remember this? We went to the doctor, and we'd said that we found some areas of high blood pressure and borderline cholesterol, and we wanted to make some changes as a congregation. We, we identified five areas that we wanted to work on as a church over the next year, meeting the needs of our entire body, communication both ways, more of it, and then whenever it comes, more godly discussions about it in our midst, connecting, I'm going to connect with, with one another. Activity is not connectivity, we, we said. A greater passion for, for evangelizing and then serving together. And then, after we did that, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and, and did some, what we call patient education. Once you get the, the diagnosis from the, from the doctor, you get the test results back, then, then they educate you about, about all of the potentials and the disease states and those kind of things. And so, we looked at 1 Corinthians 12 and saw some patient education. And what wonderful patient education we got. Jesus is Lord over His church. And He has brought us together as a body of believers and that He reigns. He's equipped us. He's granted each of us spiritual gifts. And, and while all of those issues that are there are not church-wide, they do matter to the church as a whole. Because the Bible says that we rejoice when, when another Part of the body rejoices, and we also weep when another part of the body weeps. We're, we're interconnected. We're, we're not just islands in a stream. We are, it's not, church is not just about, it takes a village to, to do Christianity. We are a unique organism. The body of Christ, the Holy Spirit living in you as an individual, and then inhabiting and, and indwelling and, and bringing together the, the whole body, which is a unique thing whenever we, whenever we gather. This morning, I want to start on the exercise plan. Now, how many of you enjoy exercise? Yeah, okay, good. I, I thought to do this, so there would be a few hands that would go up and say, enjoy exercise. You notice that both of my hands are in my pockets right now because I do not enjoy exercise. I guess it depends on how you define it. Now, I... I enjoy getting up early in the morning and going and sitting in a tree and watching for animals. I enjoy fishing. I enjoy walking outside in the, you know, in the in the wilderness and in, in God's creation. But to, but but to go through a, a weightlifting program or running or those kind of things, it's labor. It's something that I actually have to get myself psyched up to do and then keep myself psyched up as I as I do it. Some of you in, enjoy that. So. When you hear the word exercise, you should think activity. You should not think, blah, I don't enjoy doing that, if you don't enjoy exercise like me. You should think right. It does mean activity. It does mean things that, that, that you put your hands to. But it's, there's benefits that, that go along with it. I understand that whenever I actually do exercise, the rare occasions that, that I do, when I do, I feel better after uh, I get done, right? There are benefits that come from that, from that exercise. And so we're going to look at this exercise plan. And, and the Bible is very specific. God has not left us guessing of what it looks like to, to, to identify problems, what it looks like to fix problems. He's, 
He's given us very clear instructions on how the church is to function and what we're to do and how we're to, to exercise our muscles as a, as a congregation. And so the four steps that I'm going to be giving you in this exercise plan, we won't do all of them today, but in these four, these four steps that I'm going to give you is what every church or any church needs to do to, to either get healthy or, or stay healthy. So I want you to open your Bibles to... Galatians chapter 6. Galatians chapter 6. And they'll put that list back up there in, in a minute. It's just to show you that I actually do have a message this morning, all right? Now, growing up, we loved to swim. Um, this past week, there was a lot of rain in, uh, in, 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 at Word of Life. And so the beaches of the, of the lake were closed. I mean, they had like an extra eight foot of water. And so all of the beaches were covered in water. It's a natural lake. So when the water's up, there's nothing that you could really do. And this was to the great disappointment of Jared, who really loves to swim. And I just thought about this, how much I loved to swim whenever I was a, whenever I was a kid. But the public pool was too far to go. It was a pool called Coonskin, and it was all the way downtown Charleston. And literally, it was about 40 minutes uh, from, from where I lived. And... So the public pool was not an option for us. But there was a pool really, really close. And it was a private pool. It was a private club that required you to be part of their association to be able to swim there. You couldn't even, you couldn't even pay a monthly fee or, a, or an each time you, you swim kind of fee. I mean, you had to be part of the, of the club. I can remember on several occasions begging my mom to, to join and... And I remember the excitement that I felt as a you know twelve year old boy when she agreed to check into it. Now this is you know this is back in the early eighties, and so I remember she called the club and I watched intently on her face whenever whenever she listened on the phone, and then got the news. There was a one time eight hundred dollar membership fee a year. Now that's in the eighties. Eight hundred bucks is a lot of money any time, but in the eighties that was. That was a lot, of, a lot of money. Then you also had to pay monthly dues on top of that. So the 800 bucks a year, and then you had to pay monthly dues. But for the small fee of $800 and whatever the monthly fee was, you got the benefits of the club. There was unlimited pool access, and they even had lights. You could swim after dark. You got free swimming lessons, free swimming lessons, right? You got to be part of the swim team, which was named the Cross Lane Sharks. That was a really cool name for a young boy. You could throw birthday parties there. I remember being in junior high, and everybody, uh, my buddies would, would, that were part of the swim team there in the club, they would throw their birthday parties at the pool, and then you could, then you could get in. Those are just to name a few. You got access to the activity center. I mean, that's heaven on earth for a, for a 12-year-old uh, boy. And the association membership meant for a price that you had all of the access, all of the perks, all of the benefits of the club, and the club would be open to you. Well, we didn't join the pool association <laughs> because it was too much money. Instead, my father had a better idea. Don't you just love it if you're a kid here when your dad says, I've got a better idea than you do, right? Well, here was my dad's better idea. He decided to build a pool. That sounded good. 
Build a pool? Okay, what's the catch? Well, there is a catch. In order to help us kids appreciate it more, we would work as a family to build it ourselves, right? We would dig the hole ourselves, much of it by hand. Now, this is a, you know, a regular like home-sized swimming pool with eight and a half foot deep end. We would dig it by hand. We would put up the walls and the liner ourselves. We would build the deck and nail the nails, install the pump, which took almost the entire summer. So whenever it finally got done, waiting for the fire department to fill it up, I think we got to swim in it once or twice. But the next years to come, um, there were many hours of laps in the pool. And I'll have to tell you, I did appreciate it whenever I got to dive in that in that water. Now, why do I tell you that story? I think that there's a lesson that we can learn as church members from my childhood experience. I think it's possible, and I think that I can back this up scripturally. I think it's possible to become part of a church and feel like it's being part of the swimming pool association and not learn the value of work and being a family by building your own pool. See the difference? Tragically, it's possible to be a Christian, to be a believer, and to be part of a church, whether that's an attender or or even a full-fledged member, and view church as more being a part of association where you get access to perks and, and benefits. You have the ability to swim after dark. You have rights to the pool house and whatever it might be and that that membership comes with a fee. Now, you don't get it for free because you don't want to be a freeloader. You pay for it. You tithe. You serve. But the idea of church membership is, is you're entitled to something because you paid for it, whatever you think that paying for it is. Either you put in the time and earned the right, or, or you actually do pay whatever the tithe is. Tom Rainer, in his book, I Am a Church Member, it's a new little book that Rainer came out with. I'm a church member discovering the attitude that makes the difference. Said, so that thinking goes something like this. This is my church, so you have to do what I want. I don't pay good money to this church to listen to sermons this long. I took personal offense to that one. Look, the pastors need to remember who pays their salary. I've been a member of this church for over 30 years. I have the right to have my perspective heard. Rainer argues with every one of those quotes. Now, now frankly, I've, I can understand some of them. Some of those are just seem over the top to me, too carnal for a believer to even think. But his point is the self-serving attitude of the heart that, that is, that's our propensity as believers. Our propensity... As believers, if you'd want to boil depravity down, you've seen the little picture of either Jesus is sitting on the throne of your heart or or you are sitting on the throne of your heart. That's the evidence. I mean, that's the essence of of depravity. Either, Either God is here to serve me or I am here to serve God, right? I mean, the whole point of creation after Adam and Eve is that everything is here for me. I want to use it for myself. I don't want to follow God. I don't want to obey God. I want to use God, but... Beyond that, God can stay there and I can stay here as long as He lets me have my orbit and do whatever it is that, that, that I want to do. 
The essence of the human heart, the essence of my heart is that I want to sit on the throne. And so even as believers we have that problem constantly. We're taking ourselves off the throne and we're putting Jesus back in the right place. That's what we're doing right now this morning with the Word. Because all week, all day, even all morning you've been thinking thoughts and not all of those thoughts are biblical or godly. They're, they're human thoughts. They're, they're, they're earthly thoughts. They're thoughts that are generated from your flesh and from my flesh. So this morning, right now, what we're doing is we're putting Jesus back on the throne. We're removing our thoughts and we're putting God's thoughts to think in our minds and, 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 in, our, and in our hearts. We think naturally... Our marriage is about me, and Tracy is there to serve me. Don't tell her otherwise, but, uh, you know, it, it's, like a, it's like a dance. Yeah, I know we're Baptists, so we're not supposed to dance and all that jazz, but it is like a dance. Okay? There's commands that I have as a husband to my wife, and there's commands that my wife has to me. And when I focus on God and fulfill my responsibilities that God has given me, then, then it works. And when she does that, it works. But whenever I begin to take my eyes off God and focus on what she's not doing for me, that doesn't work real well, does it? You've been there. The same thing happens in relationships. The same thing happens in church. And in Galatians chapter 6, the Lord gives us four activities that every church member must fulfill. And the first thing I want to show you is every one of those, are, every one of these four, and you guys can go ahead and put the list up. Every one of these four are focused on someone else, not our else, not others. Four activities. This is the exercise plan. Four activities every biblical church member must fulfill. I'll say biblical church member. I could put spiritual church member because this is following the fruits of the spirit. Every biblical church member, because you could be a church member and not be biblical. You can be a husband and not be a spiritual one. There are four activities. And all of these activities flow right out of, of this whole book about being set free from the law. Set free by the Spirit. Your liberty in Christ. Your freedom that you have in Christ. And we have the flesh operating and you have the Spirit operating. The Spirit's bearing fruit and the flesh is working. So what, is, what are the activities? What does a life look like that's yielded to the Spirit? What does it look like? Well, it's all focused in church life. All, every one of these four commands that you're going to see have to do with the local church life. And every one of them point us to others and not, and not ourselves. You minister to one another. You carry your own load. You give where you grow. And you serve by doing good to all or to others. Now, we're only going to be able to cover the first one this morning. Let's look at Galatians chapter 6. And the first one's going to come from the first few verses. We'll only read through the first five verses, but I encourage you this week to go back and read all ten, all right? Galatians 6, 1. Brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual... Restore such a one in the spirit of meekness or gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something when he is nothing, he is self-deceived, or he deceives himself. 
But let each one examine his own work. Then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. I'll go ahead and read on. Let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, and he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. Let us not grow weary in well-doing or in doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all especially to those who are of the household of faith. Now, I find this fascinating or interesting. He begins verse 1 with brethren, and he ends with the household of faith, bookends, all about the local church. All about the local church. All about our responsibilities as biblical church members to want to know the exercise plan. Right there it is to fix any issue or any problem that any church has. And the very first activity is found in verses 1 through 3. You minister to one another. The first activity every biblical church member has is that you minister to one another. Now look at verse 1, because it's significant that he starts with brethren. Brethren, he says. Brethren. The church that I was saved in... Back in the early 60s, used to be called a evangelical united brethren, whatever in the world that is. I had no idea what that was whenever I was saved there. But back in the 60s, the evangelical united brethren merged with the Methodists, and the church didn't agree with the doctrine. That's how it became United Methodist. You remember, you, some of you have been around when it was Methodist, United Methodist. church didn't agree with the doctrine of either one, and so the United Methodist Whenever all that happened, they took the church, they took the building, they took the pews, a horrible situation. Somebody in the congregation gave some property, the church built the building, and then they erected a church, and that became Red House Independent Church. But they left this little, two initials, UB, Red House UB Independent Church. And nobody in town knew what UB stood for. I didn't know what UB stood for. Well, just about... A month ago, the church changed their name to Red House Bible Church and removed this U period, B period that nobody ever knew what it was. But the background was United Brethren. It was a brethren background somewhere long before my pastor and others came along. I like the word brethren. I tell my sons all the time, it pleases the Lord when brethren dwell in harmony together. You can imagine whenever I tell them that, right? had a few times this past week whenever I told him that. The word brethren here is, is, a, is an affectionate term. It's a plural term. He says, dearest church, minister to one another. Dearest church, affectionate. I'm being affectionate in the way I'm communicating. I'm speaking to you together as a group. Dearest church, minister to one another. And he describes two specific ways. You restore one another, and we carry each other's loads. Look at verse 1. You see, brethren, if any man is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, restore. It's your first verb. 
you want to use that as an action item. Look at verse 2. Bear one another's burdens. So there's the two things we're going to key off of. Restore one another and you bear one another's burdens or carry each other's loads. Paul, before he ever gives commands, he uses this term brethren. Functioning body members. Not disengaged paying affiliates. There's a commitment as part of being part of the brethren. It's more than just occasional help. It's a a dedicated relationship where you underwrite the Christian life of another person. Here's the the focus on, on each other. You, becoming part of a church, a member of a church, you agree to underwrite the Christian life of all of the other believers that are here. You you bear part of that. Now, coming from the insurance world, understand the term underwriting. Underwriting, when you underwrite an insurance policy, you agree to certain stipulations, and you agree to pay for the health needs, if it's health insurance, of another party for a monthly fee. It's it's binding. It's a prearranged agreement, which, which involves a payment and a, and a risk. And we get really nervous when we don't have insurance and we don't have somebody to underwrite our health. That's been in the news for years now about with um, Obamacare and all of that other stuff. It's underwriting, underwriting. You agree, if you're an insurance company, to underwrite the health needs of, of another person. You agree to be on the hook for whatever those health needs are, and you do that for a fee. Well, when you become a church member, you agree to underwrite the spiritual needs of everyone else in the body. You are one body. That's what it means to rejoice when others rejoice and and to weep when others weep. You agree to be part of the body of of believers. When Tracy and I were still in West Virginia, we, we used to do an evangelistic outreach at a local high school. It was a drama type thing like, like Heritage's Judgment House. And we rented the local high school and, and we would invite people in and we would do a drama and then we would preach afterwards. And I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, church of 200 people. Everybody was involved. We would do it for three nights. Usually over a thousand people came almost every night. And we would have over 300 decisions every year whenever we, whenever we did it. Um, the Gideons helped us. We would try to follow up. Um, sadly, whenever we followed up with a lot of people that made decisions, the number of people that actually got plugged into a church was, was, was way less than that. It would be shocking if I gave you the numbers. It was a great experience. We shared the gospel with people. The whole church was involved. But I remember the second year we were there, we were practicing for the program, and Pastor Joe, my pastor, got a phone call while we were practicing in the gym. And and when he got this phone call, I could tell the look on his face, there was some, there was some great concern. And, and Jenny, his wife, was being rushed to the hospital with a brain aneurysm. She was taking a shower, and she said she just felt this, this really almost like hot liquid rush through, her, through one side of her head. And, and she immediately could still understood what was going on, but she fell in the shower, and, and her daughter was there. They rushed her to the hospital, and it was bad. I mean, it was a... I don't know brain aneurysms, but they said it was a four on the scale of five. And she wasn't expected to make it. So we went from, you know, the highest of highs, great evangelistic meeting, to being in the, in the hospital um, with, with, with Joe, with Jenny in, in surgery. Well, Jenny made it. 
After several surgeries and months of, of recovery, she survived. And I can remember her giving testimony in the church about how the Lord spared her. And, and it was just a beautiful, beautiful thing. We were all focused on her health needs, but, um, but then we realized as a church there was another significant need that, that was coming up. Joe and Jenny didn't have any health insurance. They had this thing called like Samaritan's Purse or Samaritan's Care, you know, like the Christian Sharing Program, which I know some of you, some of you have, and if, if you do, you'll be encouraged by this story. The way that it works is you send your bill in to the program. This is the way it used to work back in the 80s. I don't know how it works now. They would send your need out to other believers that were part of the program, and then those Christians would, would send a check to cover part of the, part of the, the health insurance. So if, if your health care bill is $1,000, you'd send it to, they, you would send it in to the mothership, and the mothership would send it out to, you know, uh, 10 participants for 1000 bucks, and everybody would give $100 each. Sounds like a great concept, Christians sharing the needs of one another. You don't give money to the health insurance companies, blah, blah. But Joe and Jenny never used it. And the bill for a brain aneurysm, brain surgery, those days was $150,000 to start. What are you going to do? The problem with that type of program is there's nothing in that program that forces those other people to meet the bills. If you have an insurance company, they're obligated. They've underwritten. For a, they're contractually obligated to, to fulfill whatever is in that what is in that contract. But in this Christian sharing program, there's nothing that forces the participants to pay. They do it voluntarily, and they did all one hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Every penny of their health care bills were paid by other believers that were part of that same program. I was thinking about that, and I think it's a perfect illustration of what Paul is talking about here in the commitment of brethren and the idea of underwriting the Christian life of, of other believers that, that your fellow members with. It's not like an insurance company. It's like this MediShare company. There's nothing that forces you to do what Paul is, is saying here. You voluntarily do it because you're a Spirit-filled believer. You, you, you voluntarily become a member of Timberlake Baptist Church. You voluntarily then submit yourselves to one another and take upon yourself the needs and the burdens of one another and you restore and you, you care. Spiritual members of a church, they, they voluntarily underwrite the spiritual walk of, of another. Look at verse 1. Brethren... Setting the context. If any individual, any man, is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual restore such a one. What, what, what is exactly, exactly does he, he mean by that? Well, he's just told us that there are those who walk in the Spirit. There are those who bear the fruit of the Spirit. That's what he's talking about. People who are bearing the, the fruit of the, of the Spirit. It's not like an insurance company where there's a monthly fee and we expect and demand certain rights, but as fellow believers, we're caring for one another and we do it voluntarily out of covenant commitment. And when there are spiritual needs that are present, we all pitch in and we restore the one who is, who is in need. That's what he says here. If anyone, any one of the brothers, is overtaken, restore them. Now here's a conditional sentence. It means... 
something that has a future probability. Brethren, if, if, if a frog didn't have wings, he wouldn't bump his behind on the ground. Did you ever hear that as a kid? If, if, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, then you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a a spirit of, of gentleness. When X happens... If anyone is overtaken in a trespass, then you, you who are spiritual, you who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, you do this. It's a a conditional sentence. It shows a future probability. And what you must do when that future probability happens. The issue is a brother being overtaken or falling into sin while walking in the Christian life. I would say this is not just a future possibility. It's an inevitability for every Christian living. You live sinless Christian lives? Do you live lives without being overtaken? Of course not. And when that happens, you're part of a church, and the church restores. We all fall at some point. We will fall, we'll falter, we'll drop our guard, we'll get lazy, we slip. And when that happens, being part of a body, others move in and restore. You've heard it before. The word overtaken means to be taken by surprise. I would say contextually the the crouching tiger that overtakes you here is probably the works of the flesh that he's just given. One evening I was with, uh, with a pastor who was discipling me. I've only been saved, I don't know, about four or five years. This wasn't Pastor Joe, this was another pastor. And I was sharing with him about the absolute stupidity of another man on leadership at the church at, at Red House. Um, we'd been in a meeting... Not a business meeting, but in like a pastors and deacons meeting and, and other volunteer leaders were there. And we'd been discussing the use of $12,000 we had in account. And I really thought that, that that money needed to be used for ministry and he really thought that we ought to leave it in the bank. And I was fine having this philosophical discussion. Found both points possible, possibly it would be legitimate. Of course, my point was the right one. You can believe you ought to keep it in the bank, but we need to use it for ministry. And I was totally fine with that until he got upset and he gave his rationale. It was kind of heated. He said, this is the people's money, and we shouldn't spend that money on youth. Well, that was the days whenever I still worked with Anthem, and and I knew where that money had come from, and frankly, I'd given the majority of that $12,000 that was there. Was on the finance committee, so I didn't know how much he gave, but I knew that it wasn't as much as I gave of that $12,000, so I'm sitting here going, who do you think you are? Yeah, it's the people's money. It's my money, for the most part. And I was just going on and on and on to Brother Brad about how, how this, this man was there. I also served in the youth, so I was doubly offended by, by the comment. And I was just telling Brother Brett how unbiblical this was. This is God's money. This is not the people's money. When you give, you don't hold on to it. You, du- you don't direct it. It's the Lord's money. And I was just giving this guy what for. And Brother Brett was just sitting there calmly listening. And he said, that's a shame. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone was as spiritual as you? And that's about how I responded. I mean, immediately I realized 
even if what I said was correct, my heart was prideful. And in that situation, I was overtaken. And Brother Brett restored me to usefulness. And that's what spiritual church members do. They restore one another to usefulness. This verse says, You who are spiritual, when another believer, that's part of the brethren, are overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, it's not a certain class of believers who are better, it's those who are walking in the Spirit's power. You who are spiritual, restore. He's saying that's part of your commitment to the next person that's right beside you when they're overtaken by the flesh. You who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit are to restore them. You're to mend their fishing net. It's a surgical term meaning resetting the bone. It simply means you come alongside someone who's been damaged by sin and you mend them back to a productive part of the, of the body. That's what you do. You're a healer. You're a healer of the body. I don't know if you saw this past weekend. It quickly faded off of the, the ever-quickening media frenzy of new information that comes. But I don't know if you saw it, but the cancer doctor in Detroit that was sentenced to 45 years. Did you see that? What a scumbag that guy was, huh? Here's a patient coming to a cancer doctor, and the, man would, the, the doctor would tell the patients that they had cancer, and then he would begin giving them chemo treatments and otherwise and would make millions. And he was exposed when a woman who was being treated for cancer was examined for a broken leg and they found that she didn't have cancer and never had had cancer. The prosecutors were successful and the guy got 45 years. And the prosecutor said, quote, he shut down whatever compassion he had as a doctor and switched it to making money. How horrible. And here patients came to this guy for help. They trusted him, and he did the opposite. He gave them what they didn't need and actually wrecked the health of hundreds of, of patients. People are still suffering today from the chemo treatments and otherwise the guy did. I would say, sadly, many people can give the testimony that when they came to the Brethren Clinic, they weren't healed by the very brothers and sisters God had given for their restoration that they might even have been hurt worse. You got the testimony? You've been there? When someone should have restored you in the body of Christ, they didn't do that. The bone wasn't reset. In some people, I've heard their testimony, the bone wasn't reset. It was amputated. Take the foot off. Pluck the eye out. Whatever it is. We're to be healers, not hackers. And we've taken something that's far more binding than a Hippocratic oath, right? We're bound together as the body of Christ. We recite our church covenant to remind us of, of our responsibilities to one another. Now look how he says to reset the spiritual bone that's there. Brethren, there's the sphere. Here's a condition. When this happens, if someone is overtaken in a trespass, you who are spiritual, the rest, those who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit at the moment, you're to restore, you're to mend such a one. But you do it in the spirit of meekness or gentleness. And you do it considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. You're to be a healer, you're to, you're to be a restorer, 
You're to reset the spiritual bone. And you do that with meekness and self-reflection. Now, there's a change of pronouns here. It goes from corporate to individual. Brethren, there's the corporate. If anybody amongst the brethren is overtaken in a trespass, you all who are spiritual, still talking the, the, the plural, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself lest you be tempted. There's a shift that's there. Paul says as you carry it out, you must watch yourself as an individual. We operate in the sphere of the corporate, but our responsibilities are individual. Responsibility for restoring offenders belongs to the church as a whole. But each person has a responsibility to exercise diligence over themselves. Meekness and self-reflection. Considering yourself is a very strong term. It means to watch with all diligence. It means to strain over your life. A.W. Tozer once wrote, A meek man is not a human mouse. Afflicted with a sense of his own inferiority, rather he may be in his moral life as bold as a lion and strong as Samson. But he stopped being fooled about himself. He has accepted God's estimate of his own life. He knows he is as weak and as helpless as God declared him to be, but paradoxically he knows that at the same time he is in the sight of God more important than angels. In himself, nothing. In God, everything. That is his motto. That's a good little sermonette on meekness. In ourselves, nothing. In God, everything. So you restore thinking, I am nothing, but God is everything. I'm not able, but God is able. And you also do that with self-reflection. You don't just do it with meekness. You consider yourself, lest you also be tempted. Now think about this, what he says here. Consider yourself. Well, he's just told us to to consider others. He's just given us commands about the plural. He's just given us commands about somebody who's overtaken, who needs to be restored. And then he says, don't pay attention to them, pay attention to yourself. Consider yourself. Do you find it easier to watch for sin in yourself or observe the sin in other people? I know the answer to that. I know personally the answer to that. Whenever I'm talking about my own sin, there's always a but. You know, B.R. Lakin said the church is full of billy goats. Always saying, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but. When I look at my own sin, I always think, yeah, that's sin, but I've got you these five or six reasons why I did what I did and why it's really not as bad as it was. But when I'm looking at somebody else, I take the butt off, right? <laughs> they shouldn't have done that. That's what the Bible says, right? He says, consider yourself. Is it easier to restore yourself, to think rightly about yourself, or about others? Is it easier to watch for sin in yourself or observe the sin in others? I already know the answer, experientially. I also know the answer biblically. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? He said something about a big giant log and a wee little splinter. You remember that? He says, before you try to take the splinter out of somebody else's eye, make sure you get the log out of your own eye. Now, he says, get the log out of your own eye so you can get the splinter out of someone else's eye. But he gives the point that, that you know, when you're pointing at someone else, there's three fingers at least, if you hold it up like that, pointing back at you. And that's really what Paul's doing here. Yeah. 
there is a sin there. There is somebody being overtaken there, but you consider yourself with self-reflection, lest you also be tempted. In the process of considering how to restore someone else, you can fall to the sin of pride. And you could begin to think human thoughts and not Jesus' thoughts about how to do those things within, within the body. We're to be restorers, and that means healers. We're also to be bearers. Look at verse 2. After he says restore, here's the brethren, here's the scope. If, when this happens, someone is overtaken within the body, and they fall, they slip, they do whatever, you hear spiritual, restore such one. You do that with, with these two things in mind. You're, you're doing that with I am nothing, God is everything, and I'm considering myself because I don't want to fall in the process. And now here's the second part of ministry to one another. Biblical responsibilities of church members. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Corporate responsibility is not just for those falling in sin, but corporate responsibility is for the burdens of the body in general. A burden doesn't have to be sin. It's just general burdens. General burdens that are there. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Bear one another's burdens. That doesn't mean just put up with the person next to you because there's such a burden to bear, right? It means everybody should shoulder the burdens under which an individual is groaning. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you in here this morning are groaning spiritually? You would never share that with someone. But you came to church this morning and you feel like that you're going to buckle under the spiritual weight that's there. And maybe even this morning is a, is a welcome distraction of the things that you bear in life. Now, whether we as a church do a good job fulfilling this command or not, I want you to know that God cares about that burden. He cares so much that He gives commands, not just to Timberlake, but to every church and to every individual, that they're supposed to be helping you bear that burden. It's not your burden to bear alone. In fact, the word that He uses here for bear, the word that He uses here for burden, I should say, is a, it, it literally means something that's too heavy for one person to carry. That means that the burden that you feel is too heavy for an individual to carry, and God has created this thing called the church to help carry those loads that are too, too heavy for us as individuals to bear. Do you see why it's the spiritual that do the restoring? Do you see why you have to understand the brethren? you see why you have to consider yourself? you see why you have to have the attitude of meekness? Because if not, we're too worried about our own needs, our own rights, our own demands, while there's needs that are going on all around us and people are buckling under the weight and they're crying out for help and we're too worried about me sitting on the throne rather than Jesus sitting on the throne and people are dying in the church and they're dying and going to hell outside of the church. Amen? Amen. Amen. That's what the Bible says. You minister to one another, you restore and you carry loads. You face those burdens that are too hard to bear. These burdens can be besetting sins. 
The setting sins are the sins that you still have today that you could probably look back in your life and say, I struggled with that my entire life. You're still working on that. could be burdens or the consequences of sin. Sin complicates things. Sin leaves a mark. It can be forgiven completely because of the blood of Christ. But there can be consequences that come. And the church is there to help you carry those consequences. The attitude of the church shouldn't be, hey, you made your bed, you need to, you're just going to have to lie in it. What an ungodly, anti-Christ attitude for believers to think. It could be the burden of a weak conscience. It could be the infirmities of life, sickness, financial hardship, parenting. To bear means to carry away and to endure. A load is half a load with two people carrying it. A load is even lighter than that with 600 people carrying it. Look at what he says here. Bear one another's burdens in verse 2. And when you do, you fulfill the law of Christ. The law, you understand, the law of Christ, he says. Not just the law, but the law of Christ. The Mosaic law was a burden. But the law of Christ frees. When you bear the burdens of another, you fulfill the law of Christ. You give them wings. You don't give them weight. You ever thought about how bearing someone else's burdens fulfills the law of Christ? How does bearing someone else's burden fulfill the law of Christ? Isn't that what Jesus did for you? That's what He did for me. (laughs) He bore my burden. He bore a burden that I caused that He didn't. There is not a single sin that I ever committed. There's not a single sin that I ever will commit that I would even think about standing before the Lord and saying, yeah, but you did this, or if you hadn't have done that, the burden that He bore for me and for you is all my doing and none of His. And yet He willingly bore that burden. And that burden was too heavy. For me to bear. Isn't what Matthew 11.28 says? Come unto me, Jesus said, all you that labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Jesus says, come unto me and I will restore you. Oh, what purpose you have in life whenever you follow Christ. No, I don't care how many bones you have broken. I don't care how big the hole is in your net. Jesus can restore you to usefulness in life. And I don't care what sins that you're facing or the consequences that you're facing. You have a friend in Jesus because Jesus is a friend of sinners and He will help you bear the burden. That's the law of Christ. And that's the law that church members are to fulfill for one another. They're to be restorers and they're to be burden bearers. Won't you bow your heads?